Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Thank you for dropping in. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Diane Dewey, and I know that busy schedules get in the way of meeting the folks we want to meet. Dropping in is a lost art. When I was a kid, my parents would sometimes go over to the neighbor's house or vice versa, just dropping in on them. Or we'd be hanging out, and somebody would knock on the door, and right away, it was a fun surprise. Where I live now on the Gulf Coast of Florida, I sometimes don't see our neighbor friends. Our digital lives haven't made it easier. Instead, it's more complicated. It's time to drop in and see what folks are up to. We'll do a deep dive into the subject at hand. We're dropping in to find out what makes our guests tick, artists, musicians, and writers who have discovered how to make a statement, usually one that goes against the grain. Making a contribution to the world is a tough enough goal, but here are people who've come at it usually the hard way, and one. We'll listen to their diverse stories about identity. Identity can refer to biological, nurture, gender, cultural, racial, spiritual, and other labels that we assign ourselves, insider, outsider, hipster, square, or nerd. Sometimes the I in identity gets lost. Everyone wants to be our authentic selves despite the odds against it. We each have a context whether it's a family of origin, an adoptive family, or a marriage. And that makes maintaining identity, the call to rediscover and reclaim who you are, all the more challenging. For me, the call came when, at 47 years old, I got a letter from my Swiss biological father. Having always known I was adopted from a German orphanage at age one, I faced his question, would I like to meet him? I would, I said. Why did I agree to that? Maybe I was filling a void. My beloved adoptive father had just died six months before. I'd ended a long-term romantic relationship with a man who was driving me crazy. I was ready for a new anchor. And that letter started me on a 16-year journey of learning my roots and discovering a new identity. I visited Switzerland and went cross-country skiing in the Engadine Valley with my biological father, He'd done 18 ski marathons. I was petrified, but I told myself I could keep up. Maybe it was to please him. The Angadine is a special place, very raw, very rural and remote, where the old language Romanche is still spoken. It's almost extinct. This struck me as being, like I was, far, far away from whom I'd become as an art gallery assistant in New York City. My biological identity had been obscured, but back there in my father's homeland, I had aha moments. Why had I gone to Vermont years before and become a cross-country skier? Had my genetic coding been unspooling all along? And what else would I learn about myself that had been hidden? My biological father, Otto, and I visited my biological mother's family in northern Germany. Helena had passed away before I could meet her. But the family showed me pictures in an old, musty, smelling leather album. In the photos, Helena wore outfits that she had sewn herself. 
I thought back to my teenage years when I told my adoptive mother that I had to have sewing lessons to make the kinds of clothes I wanted. It was another uncanny connection with biological identity, but that's not all. It turns out that Helena actually had died in 1987, but not before she'd taken a job in the orphanage to be with me, not before she searched for me for the rest of her life, and not before she met a U.S. serviceman stationed in Germany and we moved with him to America, where they settled in Rochester, New York, one state away from where I grew up in Philadelphia, and not before she somehow learned my whereabouts and arrived at my family's home near Philadelphia to be turned away at the door. Helena's family told me these stories, but because I'd been curious and even obsessive, I'd read that the foundling, in the foundling homes in the, in the United Kingdom during the 1900s, if a woman left a child, she also left a small trinket with them. These talismans might be a ball of yarn, a coin, or a shard of pottery, whatever the mother had at hand to connect her to her child. If she returned, the token would reunite her with a daughter or son, but more often, the child grew older with a locket or the stone or the small metal coin in their pocket, all their lifetime sometimes, as a remembrance of a mother that once was. I'd had no such mementos. But now I found through her siblings that they'd kept Helena's baby spoon, her pearl earrings, and her grandmother's ring for me. And while I didn't have her, Helena, and I would never have the touch of her hand or to my cheek again or the sound of her light voice in my ears, through these talismans they gave me, I felt I had found her love. An idea that she might come back and might have claimed me if I held on to these took hold. When I asked her siblings what made them think they'd ever meet me, they said, we just knew. They didn't question their intuition. It was something I'd have to reconnect with, a faith in what I knew all along, if I were to find my inner guidance and stay true to my identity. In everyday life, there are several deaths, not just externally, but deaths of the soul. There's a cycle of rebirth and renewal. Just as in marriages, there may be inward divorces, estrangements, remarriages, and in families, separations and reuniting. I feel as though my story is about finding love after such a death of the soul. I'd won the lottery with this biological family of Helena's. I knew that many others didn't get this chance. And even though it would be years before I pieced together what really happened to put me in that orphanage, I'd gained juice the strength and validation to move forward. Through meeting them, I realized that love is the strongest force in the universe. People across the globe will find one another, especially now with the advent of DNA kits. I've also learned that the truth has a special force all its own. It will prevail over deception, no matter what the cost. It's a trust in the world, a world that had been uncertain for me, I'd been told by my adoptive parents that my biological family were dead. Finding this truth is the subject, of, the subject of my book called Fixing the Fates, when my destiny was no longer decided by others. My identity was formed by parts of all these people, biological and adopted, but I also became aware that I was a person I had created by myself. I had to ask, who did I imagine myself to be? After I sift through and locate myself, 
who I am is who I designate to be, the labels I attach myself to. We're always becoming, and part of this process is to look beyond a traumatic past and push through our own self-limiting beliefs, often to do a reality check on self-love where every dream is attainable. My job was to resist the traps of magical thinking, either too positive or too negative. And part of my arsenal in this fight was knowledge. With a master's of science in mental health counseling, I've tried to unravel my own story. And now, as an award-winning author of Fixing the Fates, I help writers get to where they want to go with their manuscripts. I analyze their intention and execution to see if these two match up in the story and investigate the writer's goals to look at how the language carries that out or doesn't just yet. Writing takes shape in the editing. I've crossed out and replaced all the way along, just like with identity. Then I had a year's plus worth of content in copy editing. Reviewing text to make it as real as possible is an irresistible urge. At True Nord Media, I'm aided by two ace editors, one from the world of journalism and one from corporate public relations. You'll find their support indispensable. To light the way forward towards publishing, we have an on-staff book agent. My fellow writers work to form truths and feelings that we want to polish to share through story. I came out of the art world in New York, where for much of the 1990s, I worked for the Guggenheim Museum. It was a place of great visual beauty. And visual arts relate to how you set a scene in creative writing. It's the revelation of the senses, sight, smell, touch, and sound that brings the scene alive. And since we live through our physical bodies and feel our instincts there, it's key to listen to when the stomach grows into knots or our breathing gets shallow or our eyes are squinting. Maybe we can't digest what's happening or relax enough to breathe or there's some part of the picture that just doesn't add up. Writing is a great way to tune in and access what's happening with ourselves. We make sense of our own thoughts and emotions through laying these words down side by side like bricks. There's both left brain logic and if we can articulate the emotion, the right side feeling brain that forms a whole. It's what I've done with Fixing the Fates, which some readers say is like a page-turning novel. I hope that you too will find the inspiration to define or redefine yourself from dropping in. We're stopping by to talk, to take a deep dive into a subject skipping the small talk. We'll meet a musician who's written a Grammy award-winning song when before his dyslexia delayed his reading. We'll hear from a best-selling writer who didn't believe in his own strength until he found it through bodybuilding, violence, and then sentence building. We'll talk to an intellectual who's discovered that her elderly mother found her own truth sexually in the role of a dominatrix, an author who did things that she swore she'd never do traveling in an RV, for example. Now she lives full-time on the road, enjoying Wanderlust. An American writer living in Qatar who woke up one day to find out that the rug had been pulled out and she was no longer that person, that wife. An individual who became a humanitarian when her father, then the governor of a southern state, represented all that was evil in racism. Gender-questioning persons for whom birthright is a starting point for the conscious choice of deciding who they are. 
These important truths about diverse identities always worm their way out. By listening to others get a foothold on who they are and learn about their process is to become more ourselves. I hope you'll take away clues as to how to do this and to find maybe the person you've always known and imagined yourself to be. Dropping in guests are people like you and me, but who have shown the world what it means to be an individual, to sift through, create, discard, and reclaim, and to listen to themselves. Not always easy with the noise of our busy lives, our yapping brains, our self-judgments, and censorship. Somehow, I never thought I'd had much to say. I wasn't empowered to do so. But others who had more confidence encouraged me that everyone knows a unique truth. And now, we're empowered to tell our diverse stories. Authors, writers, musicians, and artists have been my teachers on how to arrive at a place that's centered and even brave, especially when the facts around me were collapsing. Their creativity is contagious. When we listen to their stories, it's easier to recreate ourselves the way we had intended. We might have gotten derailed by something shiny, hooked on a glamorous detour, or focused on something that turned out to be false. The distractions are not failures. They're proof that we're growing. Jim Carrey said that depression occurs when your avatar no longer identifies with who you're trying to be. The psyche knows what's real and what's not. Its signal is whatever becomes vibrant to you. In an inexplicable affinity with African drums, an ethnic textile, or a poem, we construct identity constantly through an organic process of binge and purge. At Dropping In, we'll explore diverse stories. What makes people unique? We're done with shoehorning ourselves into preconceived notions of who we should be, being told who we are. Dropping In stories are stories of self-discovery. They enable us to find our truth, reconfigure ourselves to that truth, and reimagine who we want to be becoming stronger for it all the while. By listening to others talk about their path, ours becomes less fearful. We're always supposed to know what we're doing, but often we don't, and there's no shame in that. We need a compass. Drop into the conversation. Create a new dialogue. You'll get the answers you seek or even the questions you want to avoid. The adventure continues on dropping in, where unique stories become part of the fabric of diversity. We're going to take a short break now, and when we return, today's guest, Andre Deboost III, will drop in to chat with us about being a knockout, how he came this close to pummeling to someone, pummeling someone to within an inch of his life, before he stopped, looked around, asked himself what he was doing, and began writing the books that would save us, some of us, in our lives. You won't want to miss this. We'll be right back. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. 
We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back. Today, our guest is Andre Debus, the author of four novels. They're all tremendous. One collection of um, novellas, one memoir, and I'm, I'm, I'm just really lost in how much wonderful stuff he's written. But let me tell you this. His book, House of Sand and Fog, was a, national, was a finalist for the National Book Award. It became a New York Times bestseller and was made into an Academy Award-winning film starring Ben Kingsley and Jennifer Connelly. A second book, The Garden of Last Days, another novel, is soon to be a major motion picture. His memoir, Towny, is the focus of our conversation today and why I felt compelled to invite Andre to join us. Um, his accolades go on and on, but I think you're going to find that as a person, he shines through even more than any of those. Thank you, Andre, for being with us. Thanks for having me, Diane. It's good to see you. Thanks so much. Um, Towny, this is your memoir. It's a book where um, sometimes I hear people say, oh, yeah, that affected me for like days. I think to myself, Hmm. this memoir has permanently changed me. I won't be the same after reading this. Hmm. Um, It's a book that is so closely hewn to the truth, and I don't have my tolerance for bullshit anymore Mm. than I did before. Um, Can you talk a little bit about um, writing it and, and, and how, I mean, do you edit yourself to this very shorn down spare place or how does this happen? Well, um, that memoir came about the way a lot of my work comes about. It's really the phoenix that rose from the ashes of what failed and what I actually wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was write an essay. My wife and I are blessed with three kids, two boys and a girl. And I wanted to write an essay about my sons in baseball. And we, you know, we live north of Boston and my kids grew up with, you know, little league sports and, and I didn't know how to play baseball until I watched them play baseball. And I began to coach and I was a coach who didn't know how to play baseball. And it was kind of funny. And I thought, I'm going to write about how was my sons who brought me to America's pastime, not my father. And I thought it was going to be a funny essay in 500 pages. And three years later, I wrote what I was doing instead of playing baseball, which is living with uh, my single mother in first world poverty and moving two to three times a year for cheaper rent. 
getting beat up a lot, uh, accosted, and um, snapping in my early teens and becoming a fighter for many years until it was very clear that the road I was on was harmful to myself and others to a point that was no longer negotiable. And I found creative writing, which saved my life spiritually and physically. Well, thank you for that, because I think that transmits through the pages. I I think that feeling of redemption of getting at something and the baseball part, um, I remember you going to the game and Mm. your father not being clear on why you didn't know that sport, Mm -hmm. why you didn't know, you know, the very arcane facts of the sport or even the basics. Mm -hmm. And it was because you had lived um, with a fair amount of deprivation and, I think the thing I loved was that you resisted being accusatory and you were, um, I think, reaching inside yourself for a kind of compassion, even if you didn't know how to articulate that. Yeah, I, I you're, uh, thank you for perceiving it that way, because I, I, I felt no anger. You, you know, I, years ago, before I ever thought a memoir would come out of me, I read this line from some writer who said, if you're going to write memoir, you should be able to sue yourself for libel. <laughs> In other words, you better be honest about your your warts and your 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 failings. And um, you know, when I started to write this this memoir, I was you know I was pushing fifty, and it was old enough that I felt I could be very honest with myself about my own failings. Um, there was a time in my life, in my especially my twenties and thirties, where I was angry at my parents for the for the childhood we'd had. Uh, but by the time I, I began to write. Townie, I was no longer angry at anyone. I just felt compelled to try to capture what it was like to be in a mill, a dead mill town north of Boston in the 1970s as a kid in neighborhoods where there were very few fathers around, it seemed, and a lot of kids were doing drugs and alcohol, and there was a lot of violence and violence against girls and women. That's, that's, that's the time and place that formed me. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, the violence, I hate violence, but I became a perpetrator of violence, mainly against those who victimized other people. And um, I got a lot of social rewards for that. And, you know, uh, the local police liked me because I was beating on people they wanted to, but couldn't without losing their badges. But that little voice, we all have intuition. I love the word intuition. Maybe you and I have talked about this. I don't know if it's a Latin or Greek root, but you know what it means, Intuition. You must remind me. To watch over or to guard. Which is lovely. So that little voice in me knew that, um, okay, so you've changed. I should tell whoever's listening that I was a small boy, um, very sedentary, very soft. And, and um, there was a traumatic event with my brother that, that really pushed me into weight training and boxing. And, and, but that there's a little voice that told me, look, no matter how, positive these changes have been you've changed your body from soft to hard from passive to active you've gone from being a victim to a victimizer of victimizers that little voice inside me said but this is a dark road and you could get killed doing this but maybe worse than that you might kill someone Mm -hmm. with this unbridled violence and um and that's that's what led me towards changing my life yeah cool i mean i i think um, the part that was really graphic for me was the membranes. Mm. You you talk about membranes. Once you punch somebody in the face, right. you have you have trans 
scented their membrane. It's something unspoken. It's something un, you know, it's intangible, but it's there. Hmm. And, um, and once you do it, it just gets that much easier because you're mm-hmm. inside, you're inside now you're inside mm-hmm. the membrane. And I wonder if you could talk about membranes because that uh, image, it also made me think about like, once you put your hand in the till, mm-hmm. it's just as easy to take, you know, put it mm-hmm. in again. Once you violate the membrane that's between you and the faith you have in your husband, um, infidelity, that, mm-hmm. that's a membrane. Mm-hmm. The membranes are, anyway, I, I wonder how it is for you now. Mm-hmm. Um, with membranes. Yeah, I mean, I think you described all that really poetically. I mean, it's a subtle barrier that's invisible. And I think that when you're in a heightened state of awareness, and for me, the heightened state of awareness came in a fight situation. Um, and then writing about fighting years later put me in another heightened state of awareness. And that's where I really began to articulate to myself just what you did really well. But, um, you know, someone's face is given... <laughs> given by God and mom and dad or wherever the universe derives these miracles called babies, we're not supposed to hurt each other the way we do. We're not supposed to shoot each other and stab each other and punch each other and kick each other. I remember the first man I ever punched in the face as hard as I could had pushed my brother down two flights of stairs. He was a thug and a predator and he routinely did uh, cruel things to people who were innocent and I punished him for it by knocking his teeth out with a, with a right cross punch I'd learned in the gym. It was my first, first punch. I was 17 years old, and it felt so good to do that to a man who consistently had done ugly things that I kept doing it. Now, um, once you punch someone as hard as you can in the face, it's always easy to punch someone in the face psychologically because in order to cross that membrane, that person's inviolable years later, a psychologist who read the book said, you know, it's called the kinesphere. Huh? It's a kinetic, it's actually a thing that psychologists talk about. It's, it's the kinetic energy field around every human being, which should be inviolable. It should be totally private. This boundary is not, you're not allowed to cross this boundary unless I give you permission to cross it. Mm-hmm. So when two adults have consensual sex, they're both giving permission to the other to come close. To, I'm going to let down the boundary. But, you know, you, you, one of the things that has occurred in the last few years, especially since writing about that in, in my memoir, Townie, is I feel this in creative writing all the time. The sense of the boundary I'm stepping into the blank page. There's a blank page, and now I'm trying to step into the private skin of another human being I'll never be called a character. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a white American male. Well, I've written from the point of view of women. I've written from the point of view of girls and in Iranian. I've written from the point of view of Saudi Arabian. I've written from the point of view of people who have jobs I'll never have. And of course, that's the writer's job. But that also feels like a transgression into another membrane. And so the violence that I was involved in for, you know, about 10 years of my youth, um, it does have parallels that are not violent, which I find fascinating. Absolutely. Well, for one thing, you were, you know, doing the right thing by um, offering protection to ones that you loved. I, I also want to play devil's advocate and say there's a way in which um, you, you went from being passive to being active, right? You mm. took action. Um, and that trauma, the definition of trauma, that which we can't process, um, it's reliant on helplessness. Mm. And you kind of stood up and said, I'm not 
going to let myself be traumatized anymore. You're so right. I it's, it's strange now at age 60. I mean, the moments we're talking about are 40 years ago in my life, but um, I'm very aware of, I'm not quite sure why my awareness is a little more heightened about this, but I'm very aware that, well, I, I know what it is. Um, if I'm ever in a position with a bureaucracy or a politician or a policy change or a tax audit, uh, grown-up challenges, I'm really aware that I will not be anyone's victim. Right. I decided at about 14, 15 to never be victimized again. And, and I do know and love people who have not been able to make that choice. Now, at the same time, you know, my brother, uh, my only brother, you know, he's in the book and he gave me permission to, to put in what's in that book. He was suicidal for years. And what I saw him do is take the dysfunction of our youth, the pain of our poverty, the, the shadow of the violence. And, and then he was also a victim of daily sex abuse by a, a grown woman who was supposed to be his teacher. Uh, he turned it inward and his depression be, made him sick and he just wanted to die. And he became suicidal while I became homicidal. Right. I, I turned it outward. And it's, you know, the truth is if I lived in a different kind of neighborhood and maybe had a different kind of family, maybe I would have channeled that by throwing a football or, you know, acting in a play. But where I grew up, it was street violence. Right. I, I wondered if um, you did disarm a man once in the book um, mm. who, who had a knife in his hand and, and self-destructive uh, tendencies and, and, and you talked him off the ledge, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I think about words and how you got agency over yourself, maybe through words, maybe a tool that your brother didn't have, words on the written page, mm. where you started to claim a narrative, you started to own yourself more that way and found the power of words even in speaking to this person who sadly... Yeah was on the verge. Um, there's a power in words. I want you to could you talk about Yeah, that? I want to, well, I should back up before we talk about that moment with this young man who, who was in a halfway house where I was an overnight counselor uh, because I discovered writing about three years, two years before that. And I don't know if I would have had the tools I used in that moment. So can I tell that quick story? Sure, absolutely. So uh, that little voice told me I was on a road that was going to get me killed. Yeah. And, um, as a way to control my violence, I knew I was no longer afraid to fight. I was afraid not to fight. So no more fighting. It had been years of that. I began to box. I said, well, I'm good at this, so I'll just, it'll be a sport. So I'm training for the Golden Gloves competition. I'm living in this little apartment. I'm working construction with my brother. I'm in my 20s. And something to this day, I can only call some divine influence. I have, I have a hard time believing in a God, but I don't disbelieve in the divine. I believe deeply in mystery, mystery and divinity and something quite beautiful in and around us. Something made me sit down, grab a, a piece of paper and a pencil, brew a cup of tea, and I began to write from the point of view of a woman in the woods with her boyfriend. And I took a sip of the water, uh, the tea, and it, it was room temperature when it had been boiling. I thought I'd been writing for 10 minutes, but it had to have been an hour and a half. I put it down, and I'd never felt in such a higher state of awareness. I'd never, I noticed details about my little rented kitchen I'd never noticed before. And I felt more like me than I'd ever felt in my life. Now, what I'm getting at is that is what began to show me the power of finding a way to express myself. It was without 
fists and feet to someone's body. It was with words and a pencil and paper. And there was something quite beautiful about that journey inward. And I couldn't have had that moment with that young man and that knife to his throat if I hadn't had that moment first. I, I, I can totally understand that. And I agree. Your brother did live, thankfully, yes. and, um, and, found, and found a way through. Um, but I still think that there's a relationship between your physicality, uh, you still work out, yeah. and, your, and your writing. So there's some active dynamic. So when we come back um, from a very short break, we'll take up the question of how these two inform one another. And is this, so, is this somatic or what, what, what really goes on there? Love that you became as close to you did to yourself through writing. Thank you. We'll be back. Don't go away. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's Manuscript Coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D. Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. We're back with Andre Debuse, and we're talking about his wonderful memoir, Townie, in which he really looks at himself um, in the mirror, but also through the lens of um, fighting as a young boy, and how that came about as a maybe an act of resilience when he felt himself to be growing into the victim that he didn't mm. want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, Andre, because I and I'm, I love listening to you, but I'm going to listen to you on the page for a moment and read um, just an excerpt from Townie and Great. why this book is so grabs you by the throat and doesn't let go. In minutes, the street was quiet and empty again. My brother Jeb's teacher and my mother had walked him back into the house and I stood there on the sidewalk where Tommy J had beaten up my brother and called my mother a whore. And what had I done? I'd pleaded with him. I'd called Tommy. I called him Tommy and pleaded. I stood there a long time. If there were sounds, I didn't hear them. If there was something else to see, I didn't see it. There was the non-feeling that I had no body, that I had no name, no past, and no future, that I simply was not. 
I was not here. This, this is a question of existence. Mm. Were you even existing if you weren't existing in your body? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how did you start to feel when, you know, you, you ask a paragraph later, was there a me? Mm. And I, I really, I can't tell you from a deep personal place how many times I have wondered if there is a me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you climbed back from that place. Yeah. And, and to give a little context, as you know, um, this grown man was beating up my 13-year-old brother. I was 14, maybe 15. And, and I, I couldn't protect my brother. And my, bro- my, my mother was swinging a stick at this man and I didn't defend her because this man terrified me. He was 60 pounds heavier. And, and after that moment of non-identity, I, I, I felt cut off from everything. And, and then what started to come back, when I started to come back to myself, what came was just abject self-loathing. It felt like poison to be in the, to be in the private skin, back to that phrase again, of this coward, this coward. And, I, and what I describe later, as you know, as I walk into this rented house my mother couldn't afford, I look in the mirror at my 14-year-old face and I say, you are never going to not fight back again because I don't care what happens to you anymore. I don't care if you get shot, stabbed, killed. I don't care. You're going to not, not fight ever again. And that's when I began to fight back. And so the way I climbed out of the hole was, and this is the big thing that I learned, as as much as I hate violence and as as thrilled as I am that I I no longer have physical violence in my life and I haven't punched anyone in 30 years, and that was someone beating up his wife, by the way. I um, Good. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me not to... I have great hatred for male violence against women and kids, extreme hatred. My temper really flares. But um, what, what, what I learned from all that is I learned you could actually change your life. Mm-hmm. This, this, this is the big thing I learned. And, and I do know now that I've, I'm 30, 40 years down the road of life, I've met thousands of people. And, I, and, and so many of us uh, don't know that. Yes, And I want them to know that. I want them to know you actually can change your life. You can change how you view yourself. You can change how you view the world. You can change your relationship to it and its relationship to you. And I, you know, it, while, while the beginning of my life had a lot of darkness and, and really a lot of harrowing uh, trouble that I'm lucky to have survived even physically, I learned so much from it, Diane. I learned so much. And of course, creative writing all these years has taught me even more. When you were um, actually enacting this change, I mean, I remember um, another scene in an airport where oh boy. you were deliberating, right, back and forth, whether mm-hmm. you're going to sock this guy who had harassed a young woman in the airport. And um, I guess I just want to, because I love this idea, like, yes, we can change ourselves. Thank goodness. Um, what are the interventions? What are you saying to yourself now when you're backing yourself out of this? Well, um, to give a little context to that moment, because it's really interesting you brought up that. This is at a big airport in a major American city, and it was after Thanksgiving, and I see a woman who's crying with a bunch of women around, her, and I pass by, and I hear her say, he kicked me, and he pushed me, and he's down there, and he thinks it's funny. So I went over to her. The cops weren't there yet, and I said, look, I'll walk you to your gate. 
And that's all I should have done. But when I saw these two men blasting their boombox and looking like badasses and snickering at her, I got so angry. So I walked her to a gate and I ended up beating up, beating one of them unconscious. And it's not good. My point is the local police came and they loved me when they heard the story. They patted me on the back. They treated me like a hero. Yet, and part of me, and I got a lot of uh, pats on the back from some guys at the gate. Yet, I get on the plane and I'm buckling up and I see that both my arms are spotted with blood and I go into the, to the airplane bathroom and I wash up and I look in the mirror again and to, this is the book into the mirror. Now, now it's seven years later. I've been doing nothing but fighting just the way I promised that 14 year old he would fight. And now I, I tell it, you must stop fighting. This is not the way to live life because here's the truth to get to your question. What should I have done? What I should have done is just walked her to her gate. But Diane, why did I go exact revenge on these guys? I didn't do that for her. I did that for me. And that's what I've been trying to be aware of all my life since. Is this, is this truly helping or are you just getting your rocks off and you don't care who it hurts? Mm-hmm. And by the way, that airport was full of young families and kids, and I probably traumatized a bunch of young kids with the violence I did in front of them. And yet, I still feel the beating heart of a really nice person in what you did. Well, it's a, there is a hatred of injustice, but I, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. justify. I do believe that violence begets violence, to sure. quote the Bible. It really does. Um, I, I do. I, I. I we, I, I have taken um, several workshops with you. I mean, I just can only say I'm, I'm very proud to know you as a person, as someone who did transform them, mm, themselves this way. Um, and I feel as though uh, the, the, the realization that instead of acting out, you're going to go to a reflective place mm. and ask, is this my ego? Obviously, revenge is not all it's cranked up to be, right? Because right. you have hell to pay for it yourself. Um, right. That I wondered if you felt as though um, you'd be able, if you hadn't come to this place of stillness or some kind of truce and some kind of peace, um, whether you'd be able to write as well as you do, I mean, in terms of conjuring or whether there'd be more release of energy going somewhere else. You know, it, 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 who knows? I mean, you know, as you know, I'm the son of the great short story writer, Andre DeBuse, and my cousin is James Lee Burke. There are about seven writers in my family. Two of my three kids are creative writers. And I, I think it's kind of in our gene pool. So I think I would have written anyway. But a weird thing happened. After writing this memoir, Tony, that came out a few years ago, my next book, um, which is a work of fiction, had no violent, no physical violence in it. And it's, it was interesting by writing directly about the physical violence of my life, it sort of freed me up mm-hmm. to now look at the world in a slightly different spectrum of light. I don't know if that sheds any light on what you just said, but it, it, I do find that peculiar and interesting. Now, then, but then the book that followed my new novel is called Gone So Long, and there's all sorts of violence to deal with in there. Yes, and it's juicy. I can tell you that. I can attest. Mm. Um, but I, okay, so you're kind of almost alluding to a genetic unspooling, like we were talking yeah. about. But I, but I, um, I feel as though your, your life could have gone a, a lot of different ways mm. um, before you got a hold of yourself. Uh, I was looking at a documentary and, uh, about guys behind bars 
yep. and the perpetration of violence. And one of them was just saying, look, you got to put that out there. You got to put the meanness out there. And otherwise, it's, it's somebody's going to take advantage of you. You know, there yeah. was justification for it. And I just wonder about like all of that psychic energy that goes into being defensive all the time mm-hmm. versus being a receptor. A, a person who's taking in a lot. Well, I, that's some brilliant insight. Yeah. The truth is in those years when I lived in those scary neighborhoods and let me make it very clear. Now kids, the age I was then are facing getting shot to death as opposed oh. to getting beaten up with fists or maybe an occasional knife pulled and right. it's gotten exponentially worse. Um, but you're right. If you're in a state of hypervigilance all the time, which I still am, by the way, you know, it, all these years, I, have, I haven't been in a fight in 30 years. I still am in top physical shape. If I, if I get injured or sick and can't work out for a week, I begin to feel endangered, which is just totally rooted in my past. I, I still have a, Louis, I have a Louisville Slugger baseball bat beside my king-size bed where my wife and I sleep in, you know, in this lovely home in the woods in this Tony neighborhood where really trouble isn't around the corner very often. Um, but fear is paralyzing. And, and when I look back at my earlier life, I was afraid all the time and anxious all the time. And it took at least a decade of daily experiences with physical safety before I began to really let my guard down. But here's the thing, and I'm hesitant to say it out loud because I don't want to romanticize fighting in any way. But when you're squaring off with a man in a bar room or a street corner or an alleyway with the man who's intent on hurting you, and you don't know how good he is at the ability to do it, and there's no backing down, you are not going to be in this fight. And there may be no one around to break it up if he gets the better of you and starts to pound your head against the concrete or pull something on you. It is uh, incredibly, um, I don't want to say exhilarating. The word is, talk about you're in a state of hyper-awareness. Mm-hmm. And I have felt, and this is where I don't want to make the comparison, but I'm going to, writing and fighting do have a parallel for me mm-hmm. because as you know, as a writer yourself and a very fine writer, when you step into that naked space, it's just you and it and the stakes are very high and it takes great courage. A great, the word I like to reach for even more now with creative writers is nerve. It takes nerve to step into the unknown with a pencil or a pen or a keyboard and, and to honestly try to find what there is to find. It, it is not unlike stepping into a battle. Absolutely. And it's a battle to the core, to the life, life and death. It, and I, I think that what you talked about in terms of um, exhilaration, let's not glamorize it, right? But there is, um, you know, there's something coursing through your, your you know, you're on your adrenaline now. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily equate not fighting with, um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a personal tidbit. Um, when I was, uh, something like in my early twenties, um, I, I experienced an attempted rape, oh. but I beat the guy off. Good. Now, did you know him? No. No, no. I mean, it was a stranger coming mm-hmm. in, out of the backyard through the bushes, mm. tackled me to the ground, pounded my head onto the flagstones, mm. um, was on top of me, 
you know, the worst nightmare possible, right? And you and you just go into a completely another gear, and right. um, you know, but but when that was over, and believe me, it's not really over because just right now it's in my I can feel it in my it's in the body it's in the body it stays in the body yeah um but there's still a sense of of triumph right that I I got this guy away from me yeah and I also think that in a subtler way look we're all looking for for power whether it's swimming it doesn't have to be fighting um but like when you talk about not exercising or working out and then you start to feel a little vulnerable and you think maybe that's a little crazy maybe that's instinctive maybe that's mm-hmm. who we are as a species I, I, well, I yeah I, I do believe I, I have a recipe for people to stop taking antidepressants, nothing against antidepressants. It can help a lot of people who need it short term, but I truly believe that um, we were born with these beautiful bodies and we're supposed to use them every day and not just to eat and drink and sleep and excrete. It's we're, we're supposed to do something with them. And I think if everybody did something vigorous pretty regularly all week long, whether it's a fast walk or tennis or lifting weights or swimming and if everybody put their hands to something creative whether it's a loaf of bread or a poem or a scarf they're knitting their depression would just about evaporate because i mean that alone i think activates so much of our potential as human beings and so while i cannot tell you how grateful i am that i was beaten up so much as a kid and and went through what i did if nothing else, because I have my five, six day a week workout habit, which at my age has helped me be healthy. But more importantly, it is such, you know, I spend my days my writing every morning and then I finish the session by working out to clear my, my head and get into the rest of my day. And I'm very grateful for that way of life. It's mm-hmm. awesome. And your body tells you something, right? So if mm-hmm. you're using your body, the better able it is to tell you something the things you need to know. Um, and when we come back, we'll be with Andre Dubus, and we're going to um, talk some more about life and death, fighting it off, and fighting it on the page. We'll be back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D-media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email 
to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back with Andre Jabuse, talking about life and death, fighting for survival, and then turning to writing to fight the fight with words on the page. And I must say, Andre, in both in your book, Townie, your memoir, it's bravery. There is bravery on the page. And I think it, sorry, it makes you a better person to read the book because you end up feeling like, yes, I can take this on. I can take on stuff that I didn't think I could take on before. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I wonder about the, you mentioned your father and I, you know, I see you as a standalone, um, mm. mostly because I, I you know, I, I just do. And, but I. So I, do I. <laughs> but, yeah, you have to, right? I mean, there, you know, there's, there's only one of you. And, and the thing is that, um, but at the, towards what you didn't know was the end of his life. He found you, you were on a construction project. Um, you were renovating some uh, a house and he called you and said, do you want to come over and watch the fight? Of course, watch the fight, the boxing mm-hmm. match that was mm-hmm. on, it was a title. And um, you were like Bush, you'd been up all night. You'd been up working hard, schwitzing mm-hmm. every, and, and then he called again and he called again. And can you just kind of, yeah. Was there, yeah. Well, yeah. well, let me tell you, for those who don't know, my father stopped on the highway to help someone at age 49 and was run over and lived the last 12 years of his life in a wheelchair. Um, he was also a former Marine, uh, but he'd never been a fighter. And he, he, he looked up to me for that part of what my life. Anyway, uh, I'm remodeling a house. He calls me and I'm, I'm, I have to go on a book tour the next day and, and I need to get the tiles done. And I've been at it 14 hours and he called and I said, dad, I can't come. I got to do this, this. He said, are you going to regret it? And I said, I got to go called again. Tell me about the fight coming up. You're going to regret it three times, five times. He called me every single time he used the word regret and something to this day back to intuition. <laughs> to watch over to guard. Something said, go see your father. And I did something uncharacteristic for me. I didn't clean up my tools. I didn't empty my mortar bucket. I just drove to his house. And normally there'd be like seven or eight guys watching these fights. It was just me and my father. And we sat there and watched the boxing match. And he gave me like the one beer he had in the house. And and he told me stories of his boyhood that I never would have heard. And, and I, yeah, I had to go. I was three in the morning and I, and I hugged him and we always kissed on the lips and he said, I love you. And I said, I love you. And as I'm leaving, going down the wheelchair ramp that my brother and I built for him, you know, he's saying some positive things about the book tour. And I yell back some things like, thank you. And uh, the last image I saw was he was his, his, his breath coming out of his mouth and spurts with the stars above. And, and I never saw him again. And, um, and you know that in Townie, my, my fly home as soon as I can when I hear it. My brother and I build his coffin. We spend all night building his coffin. And we ended up digging his grave with pick and shovel. And I have to say, at the end of all that, uh, building the coffin, I, I go back to my house. My wife and kids are asleep. It's dawn. And I grab a book just to get my mind off death. And here's the epigraph for the book from the French writer Leon Bloy. Man has places in his heart which do not yet exist, and into them enters suffering in order that they may have existence. 
That's from the writer Leon Bloy. And if I've learned nothing, the only way to light is through the shadow. Absolutely. And you took us to a place where we could see the light. And thank you very much, Andre Dubuse. Thank you, Diane. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.